Hebrews chapter 12, and we want to continue. We're getting closer to the end of this uh, study in Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter 12, we will look at the last part of this chapter uh, this afternoon. And uh, we come to the last section of Hebrews chapter 12, and we might ask ourselves, what has this to do with me? What has this to do with me? There's many times we might come across something in the Word of God where it says, I don't know what this has to say to me. Uh, Here the writer is speaking to the Hebrew Christians. I'm not a Hebrew. Uh, I'm a Christian, but uh, so uh, maybe that's uh, uh, what God wants to say to me. But I'm not a Hebrew Christian. But all the way through the book of the Hebrews, the writer has been highlighting the superiority of the covenant over the new covenant over the old and the greater excellence of every associated uh, everything associated with the new. And so here is his kind of his final comparison, repeating that not under law, but under grace. That was the contention that was stated by Paul in Romans 6 and uh, verse 14, when he said, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Now again, it's my uh, personal opinion that Paul was the writer of Hebrews, although that's not told here to us, but it sir uh, sounds like him. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm pretty much convinced of that, but uh, we'll not find that out until we get to heaven. But here... Uh, Paul is saying something, or the writer is saying something very similar to what Paul has already stated. It's the same argument of the Galatian epistle. The difference between Sarah and Hagar. The difference between Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, If we uh, just hold our place there and turn back to the book of Galatians just a moment here. Uh, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 21. Galatians 4.21 Here he says, uh, Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, or bondmaid, and the other by the free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he that was of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is... Agar, and this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in the bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou, barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she that hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was one, are children of promise." And as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him and was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall be not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of free. In chapter 5, he says, Stand fast, therefore... In the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The passage here in Galatians, combined with the original account in Genesis, offers a wonderful commentary on the book of Hebrews. 
Say it with me. The best commentary of the Bible is the Bible. Right. So, we're reminded again, the Scripture has its own clarification. The best commentary is the Word of God itself. Especially when a a student simply compares Scripture with Scripture. Now, the battle between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion remains with us today. Fleshly natures are always seeking to work out their own salvation. But it simply cannot be done. Even if a small fraction of our redemption depended upon our works, it would not be salvation by grace. Romans 11.6 expresses it like this, And if by grace, then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You see, it must be 100% works or 100% grace. You can't have a mixture. And some people say, oh, we believe on salvation by grace, but you have to do this, 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 and this. It's called salvation by grace plus. I've known people, I've had some family background in that way. It's either 100% works or it's 100% grace. Which is it? Well, the Bible tells it's 100% grace. The text here before us is one of the plainest, the strongest arguments for this. The writer gives us significant contrast between the goal of the Old Testament race to the goal of the New Testament race. And those in Christ were no longer running a race toward the finish line of Mount Sinai, but rather they're running toward the finish line of Mount Zion. And so we're going to look at this contrast this afternoon. Number one, the Old Covenant, Mount Sinai. And notice here concerning this uh, Mount Sinai. First of all, the characteristics of the mount. It was a mount that might be touched. It was a mount that might be touched. Here was God's instruction to Moses at the time of, uh, as it's found in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, verse 11 says, And be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai, and shall set bounds upon the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up unto the mount, and touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not an hand touch it, but he surely will be stoned and shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth, they shall come up to the mount. You see, the mount was visible. It was a earthly, tangible place. And yet, in contrast, we walk by faith, not by sight, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, in his discussion with the Samaritan woman, you remember the Samaritan woman at the well at Sychar, when she brought up the subject of worshiping uh, at the proper mountain, he said, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. Ye know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews, but the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We do not worship today at a mountain. Yes, we're on a hill here. Okay. 
But this is no mountain, okay? We're not worshiping at a mountain. It's not a mountain that might be touched. Secondly, it's a mount that burned with fire. We're reminded of this in Deuteronomy 4.11, speaking of Mount Horeb. And ye came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire into the midst of heaven and the darkness and clouds and thick darkness. Later, Moses would write, The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for ye were afraid by reason of the fire and went up, went not up into the mount. Now that highlights the truth in the last verse of our text here, which is going to be in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. It is a mount that might be touched. Mount Sinai is that might be burned. It's a mount, thirdly, unto blackness and darkness. Now the word blackness and the word darkness signifies a half darkness, a gloom, It's like the darkness of early evening. One does not entirely conceal color. In addition, we have already seen in Deuteronomy 4, it's also described in Exodus 19 and verse 16, where it says, It came to pass on the third day of the morning, there were thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceedingly loud, so that all the people uh, that all the people was in the camp trembled. In other words, the thick cloud covered the mount and caused this darkness and this blackness. And the picture is a summary of what the law does to sinners. There's a warning fire, but it offers no light. Uh, it leaves a poor sinner in the blackness, in the darkness. And then fourthly, it was a mount with a tempest. Tempest means a hurricane, cyclone, a whirlwind. You find this here uh, in this, uh, in this uh, passage here. Actually, there's no gentle breeze blowing in off the lake or the ocean. It speaks of a boiling or a foaming. And then there's the sound of trumpets. The sound of trumpets. The trumpet is an instrument of authority in the Bible, as well as a voice of alarm, an expression of a warning. And then finally, we see here, it's expressing the voice of words, verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. Shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth, only but also heaven. Now, the illustration here is actually uh, from Exodus 20, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. So it was that which brought anguish, not comfort. It inspired fear, not peace. And such is the law in contrast to the grace. So you have these characteristics here of the mount. Now we go to, on to the reaction to the mount. And the reaction is going to be twofold here. In verse 20, 
It's going to be, first of all, on the part of the people. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned and thrust through with a dart. Now, it's a part of the people here. They could not endure what God had demanded of them. In other words, it was more than they could handle. They realized an impassable gap their sins had made between them and a holy God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Not only could they not endure the commandments, but they could not touch the mountain, and to do so would have profaned it. Again, the word touch here is different than in verse 18. In verse 18, there was a, uh, we talked about that earlier there, the touch uh, was as different in that verse, it did not mean they could ne- not necessarily physically touch it, but it was something tangible, something material. Here in verse 20, it means to handle it. It's an implying a, a touching that is coming in contact with it. Uh, for a person to touch the mountain at the giving of the law meant death. And that's a clear warning, warning given in Exodus 19. But So you have a reaction here on the part of the people, but you also have one on, part of, on the part of Moses. Verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Moses was the mediator. Caused him fear and trembling. Clearly shows the deep awe, the terrible terror connected with the giving of the law, the old covenant. It also shows that Moses was not the true mediator. Only the instrument that God used to give the message to the people. And so that's pretty much what he... He's talking about here as far as Mount Sinai. Now we go, that's the Old Covenant. Now we go to the New Covenant. And here we want to talk more about Mount Zion. We've considered the giving of Old Covenant. Now let's look at some realities of the New Covenant. As believers, we no longer are headed for the Old Covenant as our goal. It's not the goal of the race that's set before us. It's not the finish line. But we're coming or we're heading for a different finish line. It's not the finish line of Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, but it's rather Mount Zion. Now, notice first two, unto Mount Zion. This is the mountain in Scripture standing for grace in contrast to Mount Sinai and its symbolism of the law. Just consider some of the statements about it in the Scriptures. The Mount Zion which he loved, Psalm 78, verse 68. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God had shined. Psalm 50, verse 2. God will save Zion. Psalm 69, verse 35. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion. Uh, Psalm 87, verse 2. The Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. Psalm 132, and verse 13. And so here we're talking about Mount Zion. And we find here it is the city of the living God. This city described in considerable detail in Revelation 21 and 22. Being in that city is a blessed positional reality in Christ. Ephesians 2.5 assures us that he hath raised us together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.12.13, Paul further explains, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. 
But not only positionally, but from a practical standpoint. Coming to that city on the part of a believer can be a daily experience through prayer. Now we saw earlier in our study in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And so we're coming to God practically in a daily basis through prayer. We're looking to the Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And then thirdly, it's the company of angels in general assembly. General assembly here, it means a mass meeting. It's not the same word as church, which you also find here. Now, I think the common view is uh, we put general assembly and church together because church means to assemble. And so we think, well, that they, those two go together, but really, uh, they're not. They don't go to. I believe it's more appropriate to put the company of angels and general assembly together. And this phrase, general assembly, also has its meaning of a celebration of praise to God. There's going to be a gathering of the angels with the saints to praise God in heaven. But then you come to the church. Here you have the word church, which means assembly but not in the same way as general assembly. The assembly is a called out people who have their names written in heaven. It's not the local church here on earth, but rather the church or assembly of saints in heaven. In Christ's church, but the church assembled in heaven. And the writer also uses the term firstborn, which means born from above or recipients of the new birth. It speaks of position, not chronological sequence, and it places that places above the angels. Uh, there will be a great mass meeting of the celebration of both angels and believers in heaven, and perhaps they've already started without us. I hate that when people start without you, don't you? You know? But you know, there's going to be plenty of time to catch up and to celebrate. We've got all of eternity to celebrate with the angels and the Lord. Now, we're not there physically with our new bodies, but positionally we are there. Our position there is in the heavenlies. So we're to come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, a company of angels, the heavenly church of the firstborn, but we're also to come to the God, God the judge of all. Now, there's no fear involved in this meeting Since the believer's sin judgment is already passed, your sin has already been paid for. 1 John 4, 17 and 18 says, Herein is our our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love." He is the one who will vindicate his people. He is the one who was falsely accused. He was the one who is unjustly oppressed, sometimes bearing the burdens described we find back in Hebrews chapter 11. But God will give the oppressors their just reward. So God is the judge of all. And then we find here, he's the spirit of, of just men 
made perfect. This refers to the saints who have gone on before and already in heaven. They're just men. Not just men, but just men. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> just, righteous. Not just just men. But righteous, just men now. They're already in heaven. They're justified. And since they've been made perfect, they're obviously still not in the body of the fleshly clay here on earth. Incidentally, you notice three things about just men. They're not sleeping. There's no such thing as soul sleep in scriptures. They have no physical bodies, but they're described as spiritual. They're spiritual bodies, and they're free from all sin. They are perfect. So the spirits of just men made perfect, verse 23. And then verse 24. And Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That reminds us of what Paul said about God, our Savior, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, where it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The Blessed Virgin is not the mediator. Okay? That's a false teaching. The Pope on, the, on his throne in the Vatican is not the mediator. The priest in the local parish is not a mediator. And you know what? Neither are the saints, the beloved Christians of the past. They're not mediating between you and God. The Bible says there is one God, one mediator. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He earned the right to that position through his death on Calvary, his burial, his resurrection, three days and three nights later. Jesus is the mediator. No man here on earth. Only Jesus Christ. And then the blood of sprinkling. We come to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. The blood of Jesus is far superior than the blood of animals that Abel offered. Those animals were powerless to take away sin. While the blood of Jesus has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And as it says back in chapter 10, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down on the right hand of God, settled once and for all. His blood that takes away sin once and for all is symbolized by what we're going to partake of here in a few moments. The Lord's Supper. In Matthew 26, he said, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood and my New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. So we come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, a company of angels, the heavenly church of the firstborn, the God, the judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the blood of sprinkling better than that of Abel. And then he gives us a final warning. Verse 25. He says, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they that escape or spake on the earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. And now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word 
yet once more signifieth and removeth of those things that shaketh or shaken as of the things which are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Whereof we receive the kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For God is a consuming fire. First of all, you find here the refusing of God's voice. What a tragedy to refuse Him. There is an inescapable consequence connected with this sin of refusing God. Now, earlier in this epistle, the writer asked the question, How shall we escape if we, rege- we uh, neglect so great a salvation? Well, there's no answer because there is no escape. The writer had been arguing since asking that question in the second chapter, how could one possibly expect if he hadn't been able to get away with it under Moses and the old covenant, how could he get away from, uh, with it from the God, the Son? Now remember what it is said back in chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, where it says this, He that despised Moses lied Excuse me, he that despised Moses died, or Moses' law, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, who hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. The refusing of God's voice. It's a serious thing. But then also we notice here we read about the shaking of the earth and the heaven. Now that's a prophecy from Haggai chapter 2 verse 6 and 7 where it says, For thus saith the Lord God of hosts, yet once it is a little while and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations and desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory saith the Lord of hosts. It speaks of the events that occurred during the Great Tribulation, which we read about in Revelation chapter 9. We're not going to be here when this takes place. This shaking of earth and heaven of which the Hebrew writer speaks of will be that of a purifying. Only the unshakable things, those things which cannot be shaken, will remain. By the way, of application, the question is, what do you possess that is unshakable? Do you have anything that you have that's unshakable? What about your family ties? Are they unshakable? What about your job? Is that unshakable? Can you lose that? <laughs> yeah. What about your home? Can that disappear all of a sudden? I live in Tornado Alley once in a while. You'll find that out. All of our ties, your connections, are really temporal, aren't they? But what are you in? What are what bonds you with the eternal? The things that remain after this shaking by God, His kingdom will be one thing that remains unshakable. Verse 28 highlights the fact that this new covenant, unlike the old one, we've received a kingdom that cannot be moved. Therefore, let us hold fast grace. 
Why? To have and to show gratitude to God, thus to serve Him acceptably. Now, how is this done? Well, first, I believe it's done with reverence. That is, caution, circumspection, discretion. Remember earlier we talked about reverence being the fruit of chastening. But also, God, serving God acceptably is to be accomplished with godly fear. Serving God with godly fear is a picture of manifesting extreme carefulness in all that we do. Eager lest we displease Him. I wonder, is there something in your life, think with me, is there something in your life that's displeasing to the Lord? We'll not go around and ask, okay? But is there something in your life right now that not, may not be pleasing God? Are you walking in godly fear if there is? The warning is here. The refusing of God's voice, the shaking or the purifying of earth and heaven. And then, of course, the last verse says that God is a consuming fire. Kind of the final explanation for our walk is in that last verse. Based on Deuteronomy 4.24, where it says, For our God is a consuming fire. The same writer who told us earlier, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now he sums it up by describing Him as a consuming fire. Fire, of course, is a symbol of judgment. Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15, And death and hell shall be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Fire is also a symbol, though, of God's holiness, His actions in purifying and making perfect. And while verse 29 certainly has a strong application to the lost, the main emphasis here, I think, is in light of the chapter's teaching regarding chastening and purifying fire in the lives of believers. Those things that really don't count much They're going to be burned up. Those things that need to be purified out of our life to make us more Christ-like. Remember what 1 Corinthians 3 says? Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned... It shall suffer, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. So, in order to summarize and close this message, I'm going to close it with that statement in verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. That's the plea of the writer here of Hebrews. Over 1900 years ago, who knows how? We're in the 21st century now. And it's still the petition of the Holy Spirit to those wanting to please God right now. Whatever He's commanded, refuse Him not. His instructions deal with every phase of our Christian life. Refuse Him not. Whatever His will is for your life, refuse Him not. 
His revealed will is the same for us all. It's right here. Now, his specific will for each one, not in the revealed will, is different. I hope you understand what I mean. It is not God's will for each one of us to be a pastor here this afternoon, okay? Not everybody's going to be a pastor. Not everybody's going to be a teacher. Not everybody's going to do that. But there is God's will that's revealed to us all in His Word, and it applies to all of us. No one knows when sudden destruction is going to hit. Spurgeon quoted the Romans as saying, The feet of the avenging deity are shod with wool. In other words, judgment sneaks up with you on you without warning. I read of an evangelist who was conducting meetings when a young father from an Arabian country attended, and perhaps the message was new to him, but he appeared unperturbed and unpersuaded, and two months later he was in eternity, the victim of a bullet fired by his own 12-year-old son. Listen to him. Refuse him not. In India, there was a rain-weakened dam that was about six miles above the city, and it collapsed and sent 30-foot wall of water hurling tons of water toward the city, and the death toll was about 15,000 people. Now, the residents did have time to escape. Hours before that dam broke, the Citizens were given a warning by the city's loudspeaker system. Why didn't they flee? One survivor explained, few people believed that the dam would break. Tragic as this was, there's one greater tragic, a tragedy, and that is concerning millions of souls for whom Christ died, but they failed to believe the word of God. We need to listen to him. We need to refuse him not. Let's pray.